In September this year, a young man with close cropped hair and glasses dressed in an orange prison jumpsuit stood in a courtroom in Chicago, listening to an interpreter on headphones translate the proceedings in front of him. He's just 33 years old and his name is Ovidio Guzman Lopez. Ovidio Guzman is one of the many sons of El Chapo. Of course, El Chapo Guzman, this infamous leader of the Sinaloa Cartel, whose life became a Hollywood story because of his escapes and is now locked for life in an American prison. Ovidio is one of his sons and allegedly the heir of the criminal empire of El Chapo, along with his brothers as leaders of the Sinaloa Cartel. The charges against him are long and serious. They include alleged involvement in drug trafficking, fentanyl manufacturing and distribution, money laundering, continuing criminal enterprise, which means someone who occupies a position of organiser, a supervisory position, or any other position of management in a drug producing and drug distributing enterprise. How does the defendant plead? Not guilty. Welcome to Deep Dive Monitoring from the Global Initiative Against Transnational Organised Crime. I'm Jack Megan Vickers, and this is The King is Dead, Long Live the King. Back in 1992, in the US, the Drug Enforcement Agency, the DEA, devised an approach to tackling international drug trafficking organisations. It was known as the Kingpin Strategy. You have to remember the time this was. In Colombia, Pablo Escobar had been waging his war on the Colombian state for years. The Cali cartel run by the Rodriguez Orihuela brothers was in the ascendancy and more cocaine was hitting the streets of the US than ever before. In Mexico, the disintegration of the Guadalajara cartel at the end of the 80s had created several competing cartels like the Sinaloa, Tijuana, Juarez and Gulf cartels who battled over the lucrative trafficking routes into the US. So the idea of the Kingpin strategy was to weaken, destabilise and destroy these groups. How? By attacking their most vulnerable areas, disrupting the supply chain, production, distribution and logistics, finances, assets and communications. Recently, I watched a talk from a few years back by one of the architects of this strategy, Robert C. Bonner. But what is the strategy? I start with this question because, quite frankly, I'm not sure the Kingpin strategy is very well understood. Perhaps the name of the strategy itself, the Kingpin strategy, is the source of some confusion because quite a few people now seem to think that the strategy is just about targeting and going after the Kingpins, the top leaders of the drug trafficking organizations. But that view totally misconceives the strategy. It's highlighted that there is a misconception in the public consciousness about this strategy and that its sole purpose is to go after the individuals, the head of the snake, if you will. But remember, it's targeting those vulnerable assets. But after making this distinction, in this same discussion, it's revealed that a major component of this strategy is to target those senior members of drug trafficking organisations. The reason given is that they're not easily replaced, and therefore the organisation begins to struggle, maybe even collapse. But even the frequently referenced success in the dismantling of the Medellin and Cali cartels does not necessarily stand up to scrutiny. I think by now we all know that this strategy has not worked. Every time they remove a leader, 
there is a battle for power and a new leader emerges. This is Syria Gastalem Felix, the Director of Resilience at the Global Initiative Against Transnational Organized Crime and a native of Sinaloa, Mexico. You can see this violence. I mean, you go after a leader, but there was no real reflection about the consequences for security in the city when a leader of this magnitude is captured. So not only that, we have seen that the results of this strategy are not effective, but also that the immediate consequences can be really dangerous for general population. And it's even so outdated to even think of like a kingpin strategy will be enough. And this is really important. So let's take the Medellin cartel. After Escobar was dramatically killed on the rooftops of Medellin, it's often thought that that was that. But we can directly trace a line from the remnants of this organization to the organized criminal groups or OCGs that today control cocaine production in the country. So let's follow one of these lines. The Oficina de Embigado, an OCG based out of the city of Medellin, are still operating today. During Escobar's time, they were essentially his muscle, committing murder and collecting debts. The man who led Oficina de Embigado after Escobar's death was Diego Murillo, known as Don Berner, who was also a commander of the paramilitary organization Auto Defensas Unidas de Colombia, or AUC. The AUC were heavily involved in drug trafficking before being disbanded in 2006. But remnants of this group started a new group who called themselves the Auto Defensas Gaitanistas de Colombia, better known as Clan del Golfo. Clan del Golfo still control vast swathes of the cocaine production and international distribution in Colombia, even after the recent arrest and extradition of their leader, Otoniel. The point I'm trying to make is that those at the top of criminal groups or networks are replaceable. Removing one group or one individual just creates a vacuum that is quickly filled. And fundamentally, one of the main reasons for targeting these criminal organizations was to disrupt cocaine production and distribution. But according to a report from the UNODC in September of this year, Colombia has reached record levels of coca cultivation. It's the highest figure in 22 years of monitoring. And although levels of violence are not at the incredible levels they reached in the early 90s as Pablo Escobar ordered murders and acts of terrorism on a frequent basis, but they remain high at 27 per 100,000 people. So what about Mexico? The disintegration of the Guadalajara cartel created a group of smaller cartels, each controlling a corridor into the United States, Sinaloa, Tijuana, Juarez and the Gulf Cartel. The uneasy truce was over as soon as it had begun and the groups battled over these lucrative trafficking routes. Of those, it was the Sinaloa cartel under Ovidio's infamous father, Joaquim El Chapo Guzman Luera, that fought and continues to fight violent and bloody wars against their rivals to maintain their position as one of the main criminal players. So again, in Mexico, like Colombia, the removal of a kingpin doesn't really impact the overall illicit trade because they are quickly replaced, potentially with something much worse. So let me just list some of the prominent or significant criminal groups that have emerged in Mexico since the Guadalajara cartel fell apart in the late 80s. Sinaloa, Juarez, Golf, Tijuana, Jalisco New Generation Cartel, Los Pelones, La Nueva Familia Michoacana, La Línea, the Beltran Labor Organization, Santa Rosa de Lima Cartel, 
Los Rojos, Knights Templar and the psychotic Los Zetas. This isn't even all of them. And groups like Sinaloa and the Jalisco New Generation Cartel, despite pressure from law enforcement across multiple countries, have expanded into South America, Europe and reportedly even Asia. And remember El Chapo was captured in 2016 and subsequently extradited. But the Sinaloa cartel hasn't collapsed. New leaders stepped up. For example, the so-called Chapitos, El Chapo's sons. And that brings me back to Ovidio, who in 2019 was about to achieve his own level of infamy. Like his father, a mythical tale now known as Culiacanazos. This is the deadly and chaotic gun battle erupting in the Mexican city of Culiacan after the Mexican government says the National Guard and Army attempted to arrest El Chapo's son, Ovidio Guzman Lopez. Authorities say a heavily armed drug cartel ambushed the military and police, spraying them with bullets. In October 2019, Ovidio Guzman is captured by Mexican authorities. But what follows is something that has no precedent in the history of organized crime in Sinaloa in particular, which is, you know, a place that has seen a lot of organized crime violence throughout the history, not just recently. But the amount of violence that we saw on that day was unprecedented. They were roadblocks, explosions. I think about 50 prisoners from the local prison escaped. There was, of course, fatal victims, but basically the city was under siege for a couple of days due to the violence. People could not leave to go to work. People could not leave to go to hospital, to go to schools. So this level of power was unleashed because of the capture of Ovidio Guzman. The government's successful attempt to capture this kingpin led to a sudden and significant wave of violence from the cartel. The images and videos from this event are quite unbelievable. Basically, what is said about that day that became a dark day in Mexican history because authorities had to let him go. Basically, the Sinaloa cartel was threatening with attacks against military families in Sinaloa. You know, there were WhatsApp messages, radio calls, and, and it was like the government perceived this as a real threat, not only to military families, but also to the population. So they decided to let him go. But soon after this first capture, he comes officially in the list of sanctions of the United States government. And it is interesting because he comes also in this link of sanctions, accusing him of, of course, leading a criminal organization, engaging in production of methamphetamine, trafficking of cocaine, but also fentanyl. And we have to remember that the word fentanyl right now is a very powerful buzzword in political times. They let Ovidio go. Now, fast forward to 2023, and this time Mexican law enforcement get their man. Again, the Sinaloa cartel unleash a wave of violence, hoping to get a video freed again. Burning vehicles, block roads, and violent gang battles echo through the streets of Culiacan. Dale, dale, dale. Vamos. The Mexican city in the northwest heartland of the Sinaloa cartel has descended into a battleground. A reaction to the arrest of Ovidio Guzman, son of the infamous drug lord Joaquin El Chapo Guzman. The clashes have left 10 members of the security forces and 19 from the cartel dead. 
but this time they got him quickly out of Sinaloa and into Mexico City where he was eventually extradited to the US, where he pleaded not guilty to the slew of charges against him. Now we've established that eradicating the kingpins of a group doesn't necessarily destroy a criminal organisation. In fact, it can create high levels of violence as rival factions compete over the leadership. This has happened often and Sinaloa has been the battleground for, for all these movements and, you know, when the kingpin strategy at its best, you know, the leader falls down and then there's like a little time of violence and then, you know, things stabilize in this. But I think beyond that, one of the phenomena we have seen in Sinaloa in particular is that the fact that this kind of movie-like arrests have in the cultural perception of organized crime, you know, and how the Kingpin strategy has actually contributed to build heroes, to build leaders out of real criminals, right? Because what we saw in the Culiacanazo, as these days calling Culiacan, with all the violence, what we saw also is like young men who are willing to stop whatever they're doing and go and kill for this guy, go and risk their lives as an army in the street. So I think there is a, also a big level of ideological, cultural war that organized crime has also been playing that, you know, authorities have underestimated and still alive and kicking. And, and you know, and the arrestable video is, is an example of that. The cultural impact of kingpins cannot be underestimated. On the, an international stage, these people make headlines. Movies and TV series are made about their lives. But locally, a musical subgenre known as narco corridos, which are Mexican folk songs and ballads, they've immortalized and mythologized the deeds of narco traffickers. Back in 2011, at the height of the Mexican drug war, the state of Sinaloa actually banned the public performance of narco corridos, and they were described as glorifying the most perverse examples of criminal violence capable of inhuman massacres. Obviously, an enforcement of such a ban is almost impossible. The ban was soon overturned by the Mexican Supreme Court less than two years later. And with a video's arrest and then release and then arrest and extradition, he was always in line to get the narco corrido treatment. Right now, this made him more of a folk hero among certain social groups of, of Sinaloa youth. You know, now he's the hero and you can see the corridos, the music composed in his honor, the TikTok accounts presenting him and, you know, the comments that people have on him because they perceive him as a hero. They don't think of all the people who have disappeared, of all the crazy consequences that this violence has, not in the immediate shootings, but also in the high levels of feminicide and general violence. And, and there's more availability of drugs, of guns, but we're building heroes out of these leaders. A video's narco credo is called Soy el Raton, I am the mouse, performed here at a party and shared on social media. And it says, I have a lot of friends. I give them support and back them up. 
I'm the mouse, I'm a video, I'm Guzman, son of El Chapo. I'm the brother of Alfredito and Archivaldo. And by the way, I apologize for the Culiacanazo. I did not fight because my daughter's lives came first. Narco corridos are an important part of what's been dubbed narco culture. And as Insight Crime once wrote, it's penetrated the social fabric of Mexico. From the worship of Santa Muerte to the use of language like levanton, which means to kidnap one or more members of a rival gang, not for ransom, but to torture and kill them. And then, of course, the music of the narco corridos, which glorify the deeds of the traffickers. And that's a perverse consequence of the kingpin strategy. It can contribute to the mythologizing of certain individuals, inspiring the next generation to aim for similar levels of notoriety. And to make the assumption that individuals are not easily replaced by another who is highly ambitious, highly capable and highly ruthless is simply ignoring the evidence from history. The issue of drug trafficking organisations is way more complex than just one person or criminal group. Now, according to the Global Organised Crime Index, Mexico sits third out of 193 countries for levels of criminality. And over the past decade and a half, successive Mexican administrations have tried different strategies. From an all-out war against the cartels and their leaders to a focus on violence reduction to more recently a suggested peace agreement with the cartels. But so far none of these strategies have worked, and it's resulted in 360,000 deaths between 2006 and 2021. In 2022 there was over 32,000 homicides, but it's also worth mentioning that since 1962 over 110,000 people have been forcibly disappeared. In 2023, nearly 22,000 people have disappeared. That's about 60 people every day. So next year, we'll see the presidential elections in Mexico. So what is the way forward? Does the current strategy need to change? Yes, I mean, absolutely. There's no question. We have seen every strategy fail. The results of Mexico's decline are documented in the Organized Crime Index. And there is no doubt that whatever has been done is not enough, is not working, and that we really need to have a shift in how we understand organized crime. You know, it's it's not just the, the response to the immediate things. For example, the militarization of security has had a great impact even in building these narratives, right? Again, we're building the good versus bad, the law versus the criminal. And this has been going on for a long time. And so I think there needs to be a shift of paradigm in the response that, of course, looks at the law enforcement aspect of it. But this is the same thing that we're talking about with the projects we run under the Resilience Project, that there needs to be a consideration of the local communities who are at the forefront of organized crime and consider their responses, consider the needs of the victims in these communities to engage also in their responses. For example, I don't, and and this is always very important for me, And especially when it comes to Sinaloa, I think for me, it's also very important to counter this narrative of it's just about, you know, El Chapo and his sons and the violence and and all these things, because 
At the same time, there are amazing activists, journalists, artists, women's groups, relatives of, of disappeared people who are working really hard at offering children counter-narratives, creating beautiful art and culture that it's really around peace and around reconciliation and around bringing civil society together because people still believe that they can do something. And that is always very, very inspiring about Sinaloa, you know, that it's never a hopeless place. That's it for this episode of Deep Dive Monitoring. Thank you to Syria Gastalem Felix for taking the time to speak to us. For more information on Mexico or Colombia and the various illicit drug markets, head over to our website, globalinitiative.net. This has been Deep Dive from the Global Initiative Against Transnational Organised Crime. I'm Jack Megan Vickers. Thanks for listening. Thank you.